You've really already heard the message this morning, and you heard it over and over again today. You heard it in every song, and you heard it in the, the choir singing. And now I want to show you one of the places where that same message is, is in God's Word, in Genesis chapter 30 and 31. Genesis chapter 30 and 31. Get in your mind, if you will, a picture of a little guy at the county fair. He's flying one of those little airplanes. Ever seen this happen? You have a child or a grandchild that's ever done this? They, you, they wait in line, they give them their ticket, they get on their little plane, and they fasten their little seat belt, and then the plane starts to go around, and the little boy, he's all intense. He's, uh, he's flying an airplane, he's trying to keep his airplane uh, aloft. He's got a steering wheel. He's got decals of complex instrumentation in front of him. And as he starts to fly, he realizes he's got a little lever. And when he raises the lever, the plane goes up. And when he lowers the level lever, the plane goes down. He's in complete control. His parents and his grandparents are waving and they're shouting and they're taking pictures. Can you hear the theme to Rudy playing in the background? But the little boy isn't having a good time. He's very intense. He's very serious. He's working the dials. He's guiding his aircraft. He's, he's banking his airplane. There might be an enemy on his tail. He's so serious. And finally, when the, the ride comes to an end, he, he, steps off on the, he steps off on the wing of the plane like Neil Armstrong, returned from the moon, or Charles Lindbergh, flying the Atlantic. And his, and his parents, uh, he's heroic in their eyes. And, and, he, and he, 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 he's had the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's flying his little plane. <laughs> it's the approach that most of us take to life. Hang on to the wheel, and you've got to make this work. And when you get off, your heart is pounding, and your hands are trembling because it's all on your shoulders. You've got to make this thing work. You've got to keep this life aloft. And you see this real clearly in one of the stories of God here, in a man whose life God particularly blessed, a man who I, uh, God identifies with him over eons of time over thousands of years god says i want you to know me as the god of jacob god one of his names is the god of jacob it's like jacob takes god's name but god god takes jacob's name and he says i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob and it is the children of jacob the sons of Israel, whose name is later changed from Jacob to Israel, God identifies with him in a special way, but in the story of Jacob, today's piece of that story is really kind of almost like Jacob at work, if you will. In a way, what we see in the story today is a, a description of the situation of Jacob's labor or Jacob's career or Jacob's life work. You can really kind of see it that way. And it's in, in this passage that, as you recall, J- Jacob has met with the Lord in Bethel. And God kind of broke in to, to, and revealed himself to Jacob. And then Jacob goes on his journey and he meets Rachel. And he ends up marrying Rachel's older sister Leah by a, like, a trick of her father. And then he ends up marrying Rachel as well. And they have a large family. They have 11 kids, so 12 kids at this point, 11 sons. And a daughter, Dinah. There's going to be another boy, Benjamin, that comes along later. And so... Uh, He's working for his uncle father-in-law. It's kind of like a soap opera, really, when you read it in the Bible. He's working for his uncle father-in-law. And the first seven years, his emails home must have been real sunny. 
hey, you know, I'm having a great time. Um, I, I get to see Rachel. She brings me lunch every day. I'm working with, the, with Laban's flocks. He's really happy. Everything is flourishing. Everything is going really well. And after about seven years in, his postcards home must have taken kind of a darker hue at that point, right? Oh, there's something I need to tell you that happened to me the other night. I got married, but it wasn't who I thought I was getting married to. But not to worry, I'm still going to marry who I wanted to marry too. Interesting letters home, I imagine, right? And then Laban, he kind of turns out to be not as really benevolent a boss at all as uh, Jacob expected. And that's what we're going to see here. Jacob, here is a man that's chosen by God. It was not because of something he did. It wasn't because of who he was. God is being good to Jacob, not because Jacob is good, but because God is good. God decides to choose Jacob, and he decides to bless him, and he says he's going to do that. Even before he's born, he actually prefers him over his brother. And Jacob doesn't do a lot of stuff that's really commendable. It's not like God can say, well, look, this is why I've blessed Jacob, because he's such a great guy. Because Jacob really isn't a great guy. Every once in a while he lands on his feet, but usually he lands on his face. And God yet continues, and he breaks in every once in a while and says, I want to remind you that you are in the line of blessing that I promised to your grandfather Abraham, and I extended to your father Isaac, and it's going to be you that's in this line of blessing. And so Jacob has this promise of blessing, but a lot of the evidence in his life, really, it's hard to find the blessing of the Lord when you start to look at it, especially in this, there's a 20-year interval here in the story that we're talking about from Bethel to the kind of the end of the story that we're going to talk about this morning is 20 years of apparent silence from God. Though God has said to Jacob, I'm going to bless you. Think about what's going on here. Jacob is penniless. The Bible says later on he crosses over the Jordan on his way with only the clothes on his back and his staff. And that's about what he has at the beginning of the story today. He's going to end up with more prosperity. But at the beginning of the story, he's been working now for 14 years. And to show for it, he's got the ugly older sister and he's got Rachel. I mean, he's got Leah and he's got Rachel. Sorry. I'm going to meet Leah in heaven maybe someday. I might have to give an answer for the way I talked about her. So I want to be really careful what I say. But um, anyway, so there was Leah and there was that he didn't prefer, obviously, and he didn't love, according to the Bible. And there was Rachel that he loved. And he's working now 14 years, and he doesn't have prosperity. He doesn't have lots of personal property. There isn't evidence, really, in one sense. There's not outward evidence to him or to people looking on that God is blessing him. We know that he is, but he doesn't know that he is. I mean, you and I have read the last of the story. We know that God makes a great nation of Jacob, but at this point, he just has these kind of promises that have taken centuries to unfold, and they're unfolding very, very slowly, and there's very little evidence that you can find. His family's kind of messed up. He comes from a dysfunctional family. His mom and dad are kind of not getting along really well. His brother actually is homicidal. He's, he wants to kill him. So he's got kind of a mortal enemy in his own brother. Now he's off here and he's got a kind of an odd situation. His wives can't be particularly happy. One of them is having babies regularly, but she's unhappy. The other one can't have babies. She's very unhappy. And, and Jacob has got to spin all these plates. And you've got to wonder if Jacob doesn't every once in a while get to the end of his day and he puts his head on the pillow at night and go, God, is this what it looks like to be living under the blessing of God? And actually, the plot thickens, it actually gets worse now. Because what happens is he finally is sort of 
14 years, and he goes to Laban at the beginning of the passage, and he, he wants to go home because God promised he can go home. Ver, chapter uh, 30 here uh, of, of Genesis, and we're picking up in verse 25. It came to pass when Rachel had borne Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you. Let me go. For you know my service which I have done for you. Laban said to him, Please stay if I've found favor in your eyes. I've learned by experience, actually probably by divination, he says, which he should have been able to tell just by looking, but Laban's got some interesting things going on with small g gods and divination, and actually you're going to see that Jacob isn't above some of that either. Nonetheless, here's what it says in verse 27. Laban says to him, Please stay. If I've found favor in your eyes, for I've learned by experience the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And then he said, Name me your wages and I will give it. Jacob says to him, You know that I have served you and how your livestock has been with me and for what you have had before me, uh, for what you had before me I came was little. For what you had before I came was little and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming and, and now... When shall I also provide for my own house? He says, 14 years now, and you've prospered because of my labor. When do I get on the payroll, Laban? When can I start to build some security, some financial security for myself? Is it really fair that I've made you prosperous and I'm not prosperous? Anybody feeling his pain here? I'm working for an unsympathetic employer, and I'm making him successful, and he's cutting my wages, and my working conditions aren't that good, and the people I work with aren't that, you know, aren't that wonderful. And I'm wondering if there's, you know, when it comes to the, I mean, I've got to think about my future after all, and my family. Verse 31, he said, well, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled, spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And these shall be my wages. He says, I want the spotted, speckled, striped, and the black sheep of the family. Can I just have them? You can have all the rest of them. You can have the premium animals, and I'll take these, these speckled and spotted ones. And Laban says to him, deal. You want to watch a guy like Laban real closely when he says deal because Laban has no intention of doing this. He immediately says to Jacob, okay, you take the part of the flock, the speckled, the spotted, the black sheep, the brown sheep. You take them. I'll take the rest. Then he immediately sends word to his servants or to his sons, gather them all quick, get them out of town. And he takes them all three days away. So when Jacob looks around for his speckled and spotted and black sheep, there's none there because Laban's taken them away. So as you can see, Laban, Jacob is in a difficult working circumstance, right? You thought it was bad. Where you work, you, you get a pattern here. You think your family's messed up? Look at Jacob's family. You think you got a weird brother? Look at Jacob. You think your parents didn't get along and they did funny things? Look at what happened with Jacob. You think, you know, you haven't heard from God? Look at Jacob. I mean, it's a, he's a great example of all the wrong things. And, and so now he is. Uh, you think you got it bad at work? You think you work for a tricky, unsympathetic boss? You think your circumstances at work are less than advantageous? You think your future prospects are grim? Look at Jacob here. And this guy is blessed of God. Interesting, isn't it? So, he, so Jacob, though, is not going to be... I mean, he's tricky. Laban is mega tricky. But Jacob has a few tricks up his sleeve. So Jacob resorts to this kind of odd kind of... The story at this point takes a funny turn. And it, it almost looks like slapstick comedy at this point because Jacob now is running around trying to get the animals to breed in front of striped poles as if genetics work that way, as if what a person is looking at when they conceive a child means if you were looking at a barber pole, your children would be striped. 
I mean, you're laughing, but you know, when you read the Bible, it's like, it looks like what Jacob is scared. So Jacob says to Laban, you're not going to trick me. I've got a few tricks up my sleeve. And Jacob, instead of just saying, okay, God, I know you're going to bless me. I'm trusting you. Jacob is playing a lottery. Jacob is playing the political game, kind of behind the scenes, trying to make it work, you know, right? I mean, this is analogous to what we're talking about. Jacob is like working the angles. Jacob is trying to out-trick the tricky uncle, uh, father-in-law here. And, and, and what's, what's amazing is he's really kind of burning his effort. He's wasting his time. God's going to bless him anyway. In spite of the silliness that he does, you know what happens? He lands on his feet. The, 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 he becomes very prosperous, according to the Bible. And God blesses him anyway. This is what says there in verse uh, 42 and 43, after all of uh, what's happened. Verse 43 Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. And later on you're going to see that he traded some of this prosperity for servants as well, which must have made his wives happy. They have household servants and they have all kinds of wealth. So obviously here's what happened. Jacob has nothing. He works for 14 years. He goes to Laban, who's been deceiving him anyway. He asks for a deal. Laban cuts him a deal and immediately reneges on the deal. Jacob does a whole bunch of strange, superstitious stuff to try to finagle the blessing of God. And God must have been smiling, just blessed him anyway, instead of his, in spite of his silliness. And he comes to prosperity. And now what happens when Jacob becomes prosperous, like his father-in-law uncle became prosperous? His father-in-law looks at him funny. He's, and Jacob noticed it. You notice it when people look at you funny. You ever notice that? You go, hey, he's not looking at me like he used to look at me. He used to look at me nice. Now he's looking at me funny. You know, what, 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 I got Michigan wear on? Why are you looking at me funny, you know? What's the deal? Um, you know what I'm saying, right? You get that. And or, or why, why is that guy, what's, what, I have something on my face? And, and on top of that, the, the brothers-in-law, Laban's sons, are very jealous. This is what it says in chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has acquired all of his wealth. And so when things start looking up for Jacob, and he starts to have this prosperity, it's still kind of, there's a cloud of fear that hangs over his head. Now he's got more enemies. And what's interesting is that they, Jacob's son, Jacob overheard Laban's son saying, this has ever happened to you? It's like you're where somebody doesn't think you are and you overhear people talking about you and you're like, it's kind of a shock, like cold water in your face when you realize what they're saying about you. They're not his friends. They're jealous. So in other words, when he's poor, that's bad. When he's prosperous, that's bad because now his father-in-law's down on him and, and his brothers-in-law, what are they going to do? This is a difficult situation. That's interesting because... His prosperity leading to the jealousy and suspicion by Laban and his sons. At this point, after 20 years, God reveals himself to Jacob again. God reveals himself to Jacob again. It's it's, it's recorded throughout uh, chapter 31. uh, Chapter 31, verse 3. And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock, and he said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before. Your dad's looking funny at me, ladies. Yeah. But the God of my father has been with me. That's true. He must have recognized that, even though he was doing all these crazy, silly things to out-trick his tricky uncle. He still recognized that God was with him. 
Verse 6 says, And I know that with all my might I have served your father, yet your father has deceived me and he's changed my wages ten times. God said, but God did not allow him to hurt me. Jacob says, God didn't let it happen. God was watching over me. He said earlier, God blessed me. God was watching over me. God didn't let him hurt me. God didn't let him hurt me. Verse 8. And if he said, thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks were speckled. And if he said, thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flock was streaked. So God, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I left in my eyes, I saw in a dream, and behold, the rams linked upon the flocks were streaked and speckled and gray and spotted. And the angel of God spoke to me. This is very interesting because in verse 11, in the dream, the messenger is identified as the angel of God, and later on it's quoting, and God said. So this was a Christophany. This was a theophany, an appearance of God to Jacob. This is unusual. This doesn't happen to everybody, and I'll tell you about, about why later. But if you can just understand this, it's been 20 years of silence, according to the biblical record, 20 years of silence. God doesn't just like show up every night and talk to Jacob and say, hey, keep it up, buddy. You're doing a good job. You know, Laban's messing you over, but don't worry because I'm here. He doesn't say that. It's just like Jacob's looking around going, I'm going to have to scramble and make this thing work myself. But God does show up now in a dream and the angel of the Lord speaks to him. And here now, as a, um, verse, I'm in verse uh, 12. He said, I'm sorry, verse 11. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap upon the flocks of streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. And I love this next phrase. I am the God of Bethel. God often does this to people. He says, do you remember when you were a little boy and when you first heard of me and when your heart leaped up in faith and I drew you to myself? And, I, and you knew that in my heart, in your heart, you knew that I was God and that I would be with you, that these promises that I will fulfill, I'm still that God. I'm still that God. I'm still here. And you know, I am the God of Bethel where you lifted up a pillar and anointed a stone and you made vows to me. I am that God. And he reminds him of his past prayers and his past promises and his past vows. He said, I have seen that Laban, what Laban is doing to you. I've seen your enemy. I've seen your poor working conditions. I've seen that you've been treated unfairly. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise and get out of the land and return to the land of your family. And Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, agreeing for the first time in their life, right? No, no, they, they said, is there still a portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? He has sold us and also completely consumed our money for all these riches which God has taken from our Father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. They agree. Understand that Rachel and Leah, they leave by an agreement that their husband solicited from them. Later on, their father's going to say, you kidnapped my daughters, I have the right to kill you. It's actually kind of humorous. So later on, Laban catches up with them, and he says something like this. You left without me throwing you a party. You left without me kissing and hugging you. I want to kill you now. You ever meet people like that? You you got a mother-in-law like that? I love you, and if you mess with me, I'm going to kill you. It's like, that makes perfect sense to some women. Ooh, there's the... (laughs) You're scared to admit that you know that's true. Girls do that sometimes. They say this over here. 
But this is not a girl. <laughs> this, is, this is Laban. And Laban is saying, you left without me kissing you. You left without me throwing a party. I have every right to kill you. Now, this is actually true because Jacob fled because he knew that Laban could kill him. And actually, the reason that Laban doesn't kill him is probably because God breaks in in a dream. They, they take off while Laban is gone. They're gone for three days. Laban comes home, finds they're gone, and he knows his household gods are missing because Rachel has ripped off those little household idols. So he takes off after them, catches up with them ten days later. But on the way sometime during that time, God speaks to Laban and says, I don't want you to say anything good or anything bad to Jacob. Don't mess with him. Don't say good or bad. Interesting. So he's warned and eventually tells Jacob that, and Jacob is kind of like in your face saying, that's why God has rebuked you. You know, so, but anyway, so, so Laban now is, wants to be, he's, he's, Laban is, is at least superstitious. And he's heard from God, whether he's embraced God, he's certainly heard from God. So Laban is, doesn't want to really mess with Jacob, so he, when he catches up with him. He catches up with him, and he says, why did you leave without me kissing you goodbye? Why did you take, why did you kidnap my daughter? He says, I think, and, and, and the other thing is, that, like he kind of throws it at the end, he says, and why did you steal my gods? He's kind of irked about that. Jacob says, we didn't steal your gods because Rachel, Rachel, his wife, was a little tricky herself, and she didn't tell him that she stole the gods. Why would Rachel do that? Why did Rachel steal the little gods? If she believed in the God of Israel, it was going to take care of her, why did she steal these gods? I'm not sure. Three possibilities. One, she didn't want her father to have a supernatural advantage that she thought he might have by the use of these gods. Or another possibility, number two, is that she wanted to have a supernatural advantage by possessing these gods, or it might have been just a kind of a mercenary thing. She said they had some monetary value, and here she was going on a long trip. And so regardless of her motive for stealing the household gods, it's clear that Rachel didn't fully trust that God would protect her either. Jacob didn't trust God fully. Rachel didn't trust God fully. But God was fully trustworthy, and God was going to do what God said, and he was going to protect them and even doing whatever he needed to do to protect them. When we come to the end of this portion, here's what happens. Laban catches up with Jacob. Laban reads him the riot act. Jacob says to Laban, we didn't steal your household. God, you can look anywhere here. And Rachel practices some pretty thoughtful trickery to keep her father from figuring out that she has the gods, and he's unable to figure that out. You can read that in the Bible. That's kind of like R-rated, so I'll let you read that on your own. But anyway, as you see that, what she, she does this, and, and so they end up making a pact together or making a covenant and eating together and making a deal, and the deal was this way. God is going to be watching you. Laban basically says to Jacob, you better not marry otherwise besides these, and you better not harm them, and I don't want you to come and harm me either. Promise? Jacob basically says, basically, I just want to go, and I want you to leave me alone. And so they have this kind of an eyes-open, tentative agreement together. It's not really based on trust at all. It's based on distrust. That's why it's kind of humorous when people take this passage and they say, Mizpah, the Lord watch between you and me while we're separated from one another. It's really not a happy charm bracelet kind of a thing. What he's saying is, you're taking my daughters, and if you mess with them, God is going to see you, and he's going to take you out. And Jacob says, yeah, and you promise to leave me alone, and if you mess with me, God's going to see you. So they had this kind of a wonderful agreement. They kind of ate together, kind of keeping their eyes open, and they parted ways. And this was evidence of a great blessing of the Lord, because here's what happened. Think about what had happened here in the whole sweep of this story. Jacob comes across the Jordan alone, wondering if he will ever find a wife, wondering if he will starve to death, wondering if he'll be set upon by bandits and killed. 
he, he, he finds his family, he finds a beautiful wife, he marries her, he gets another sister thrown in in a bargain. He works for 14 years and he has nothing. He asks to leave and he's denied. This seems like a great tragedy, but God is about to increase his wealth. Six years later, he gets away with his wives and his children and his wealth. And Jacob comes from a guy going across the Jordan with his staff to a guy going back across the Jordan with a fledgling nation. God has blessed him in this whole sordid mess of things. God has watched over him, and God has blessed him. You might ask the question, and I hope you will ask the question, Pastor, why would you tell us this story this morning? What does this have to do with us? God's stories always have a great deal to do with God's people. Can I just tell you directly what I believe the central truth? As I listen to the choir sing, I thought, there it is. As I listen to Dale sing, I thought, there it is. As I listen to the congregational songs, there it is. Again and again, we've said it already this morning. God is present even when you can't see Him at work. God is powerful and more powerful than anybody who would ever take advantage of you. God is at work when people mistreat you and curse you and misunderstand you. God is still present. Don't ever get the impression that because things are difficult in your life that God is not present and God is not at work because that's the way God works and He wants you to know that. That's why He puts stories like this in the Bible. When you are tempted to disbelieve and you say, I'm going to have to cover my bets. I'm going to have to do superstition. I'm going to have to go down to Barnes Noble and get some kind of a books on incantations and cover my bets. It's like the little boy playing baseball. You know, he's a Baptist preacher's kid. And he goes out there and he gets ready to hit and he crosses himself. Everybody's like, what did he do that for? He's a Baptist. He gets back to the, to, to the dugout. The mom and dad get to him and they say, what did you do that for? He said, I'm Baptist, but I just wanted to have all my bases covered. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was good. So he's, Jacob's like praying to all the guys. And you can do the same thing. He's like, well, I'm trusting God, but I'm not going to let anybody take advantage of me. I'm trusting God, but I got that assertiveness training course. I'm not going to let anybody mess with me. I'm trusting God, but I'm going to do a little spiritual martial arts on the side. So if anybody messes with me, I can take them out really fast. You really trusting God? Man says, this wife is my wife. God's blessed me with this wife. I trust that God has given me this wife, even though she's a little different, even though she hasn't always hugged me and kissed me when I wanted her to hug me and kiss me. But I know she's from God. Until the dark night, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, he's feeling lonely. He starts to doubt. Did God really? He's surfing the Internet. He's looking at the pornography again. He's like, wait a minute. Have I not provided for you? God says to him, have I not provided for you? He says to God, in the darkness of his heart, not really, not really. God says, I provided for you. Does this make sense? There's a guy that's working, and he's feeling like people are ripping him off at the shop, and it's really not fair, and it's unjust, and it changes wages. It doesn't matter if he puts a few things in his lunchbox on the way home. I mean, after all, I mean, you know, it's only right. They've taken advantage of him. He can take advantage of them. I mean, you, a man has to get ahead in the world, right? And he's doubting God. Has this happened to you? Is any of this stuff hit home to you? I think it does. I think it's really common for us to lose our way and, not, and to think that we're making the airplane fly when we raise our little thing and we lower our little bar, that we're making the airplane fly. And we're all serious and we're all focused and our hearts are pounding and our hands are trembling. But God, He's the one who's in control. He's the one who watches if somebody oppresses us. He's the one that will come into our experience from time to time and remind us of His promises. What does this mean to us? Two things I want you to see. One, people will hurt you, and they will cheat you, and they will misunderstand you, and they will mistreat you, but that does not mean that God is not at work in your life. I want to be careful how I say it, but I've worked for men, many good men, but they're flawed. 
And some men have been really easy to work for and to work under their direction. And they were laissez-faire in their leadership, and they were really kind to me, and I learned from them. And then other men were very hard to work for. And they were kind of, you know, they were maybe like in one fellow I'm thinking about right now, he was unscrupulously honest, but he was really hard to work for. And I told him later on, called him on the phone, and I said, you know, a number of years have passed, and, and um, I just want you to know you are a real pain in the rear end to work for. I told him that. You know, that's what I said, exact quote. He laughed. <laughs> he said, I, that's true. It's true. I admit it. That's why none of my sons ever wanted to work for me. I go, well, I just want to get off that off of my chest. <laughs> I want to let you know. It was in a friendly context. But I want to tell you something. When I worked under that guy who was a pain in the rear end, excuse me, to work for, God taught me some stuff that I still know today. God developed some things in me that are still in me today. And if you ask me, how would you like to work for Simon Legree over here? I would say, no, thank you. Simon Legree was a slave master in literature, right? I don't want to work for a slave master. I don't want somebody uh, that's oppressing me or tricking me. Or, but wait a minute. When you read the stories of God, you realize this is the kind of mess that God makes princes in. And you might be in a kind of a mess like that yourself right now. In a circumstance you're looking around and you can't see, people will hurt you. And people will cheat you. And people will curse you. And people will misunderstand you. And people will mistreat you. But that does not mean that God is not actively at work right now in your life doing what He wants to do. Remember that. The second thing I want you to see is this. Be sure that you are in a place where God can bless you. Now understand this. I want to kind of divide the crowd here. Here's the, here's the deal. The stories we've been talking about our story set in the covenant promises of God to Israel. So God had promised Jacob, I'm going to bless you. We are not in these exact covenant promises. We have a greater covenant that we're under if we're believers. That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, if, if we're in, if we're, um, that nothing can succeed against us if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's, that's what those, that, passage is not written to unbelievers if you're today and you're religious but you're not a believer or if you're like going to church but you're not under the covenant under the blood of the lord jesus christ the covenant fellowship of christ in other words i make this really blunt and clear if you are not a born-again christian you are not under the blessing of god if you are not a born-again christian you now live under the wrath of god if you are a born-again christian you live under the mercy of god it's not good guys bad guys it's guys that, that are under the mercy men and women under the mercy and men and women under the wrath of god it's not good guys bad guys that's why the story of jacob is like it is warts and all so that we understand that god says here is how you have my blessing you you run to the cross you hide in christ because God will bless His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, God in the flesh, died for your sin. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that are born again, that are saved, that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, they can look at their work situation. They can look at, look at their labor situation. Because they know they're believers, they can look at their labor situation and they can know with certainty that God will bless them ultimately because they are children of God and they're heirs to the promises of God, even if things look really bad and really bleak right now. But it doesn't matter how hard you work or how smart you are or how diligent you are or what a good salesperson you are. It doesn't matter what you do. You will never have the blessing of God if you're under the curse of God right now. And that's why this is the application to us. Bottom line, make sure that you are under the blessing of God by salvation. Make sure that you're in Christ. That's what it says in Romans uh, chapter 8. I want to show you something else before I quit today. 
And I always say that when I get within a half an hour of quitting time. Book of Isaiah uh, chapter 8. I'm, I'm kidding. Isaiah chapter 8. I want you to hear this because sometimes when you listen to the news, you think, how unjust. You don't have to look very far or listen very long to see evidence of great injustice. And this week was just like that, like that AIG bailout. Did that pick anybody else off but me? I'm like, what? You give these people millions and millions of dollars because they bankrupted the entire world economy and you give the bosses bonuses? And the people in Congress and in the White House that are thumping their chest, you know, in moral, kind of like thumping their chest in moral, they took campaign contributions from the same company. And you, you don't have to look far to see injustice. You don't have to look far in our world to think, God, this is not fair. It's not right to take. It's like, a, take, it's like anti-Robin Hood. It's taken from the poor and it's given to the rich. It's not fair. And it's, it is true in your life. It's true in my life. You see it all over the place. And so it's easy, to see, it's easy to get into the sense that there is this conspiracy that's kind of leaning against us in this world. Even as Christians, they're all against us. They've gotten together and they're all against us. It's the, you know, you fill in the blank. It's the ACLU or it's the secularist or it's the evolutionist or it's the atheist movement or, or whatever. You know, you fill in the blank. There's a conspiracy and they're all against us. And they're going to overpower us. And they're going to snuff out our life. And they're going to make our life difficult and all of that. The Bible speaks to that. And this truth really speaks to that. An example of that would be here in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 12. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Nor be afraid of their threats or trouble. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. When Laban catches up with Jacob, and Jacob kind of gets a little bit of breathing room after he discovers that Laban is unable to find the household gods, after he finds this out, after Jacob finds out that God has warned Laban not to mess with him, it's almost like Jacob kind of puffs his chest out and he kind of gives it to Laban. Why did you come after me anyway? And he kind of like gets puffed up in a false righteous indignation. And he kind of tells his father-in-law off and he starts to just, he starts like a banny rooster. You know, the God of Abraham, the promises of Abraham. And he says two times, and the fear of Isaac is with me. Jacob calls God Isaac's fear. Isn't it interesting? He, was this Isaac's way of referring to God? Is this just Jacob's way of explaining or describing his father's relationship with God? But it's in the Bible. It's true. And it's biblically accurate. He said, the fear of Isaac. It's almost as if Jacob is saying, you mess with me, but God took care of me. It, it, you, there might be, you might feel like there's some kind of a conspiracy leaning against you. You might feel like things are against you and they're not working out. God says, don't fear that. You fear me. You hallow me. You reverence me. You believe in me. You trust in me. That way you don't have to get involved in all kinds of silly, superstitious trickery to make things work out in the end. All you do is you pray to the almighty God of heaven. Times are hard, but God is still God. Amen? And jobs are scarce, but God still feeds every sparrow. And things are tough, but every springtime the flowers come up again. 
And times are difficult and times are hard, but God pulls the sun up over the horizon every morning and He floods light into every one of our lives. Washington may be in turmoil and Detroit may be in recession, but there's no trouble in heaven because God is on His throne. God is still alive. God is still at work. God will still keep all of His promises. And that is not true because we're good. That is true because He's good. So we don't have to get angry, and we don't have to get tricky, and we don't have to change our theology, and we don't have to compromise. We don't have to look for help from somewhere else. We don't have to have a government bailout. We don't have to panic, and we don't have to manipulate, and we don't have to intimidate, because we have God. The God of heaven is on our side. If we are in Jesus Christ, that's all that we need. Times are hard, but God is still God. I I want to close the service today in a kind of a special way with a couple of songs. One you'll listen to and one you'll sing with us. Be blessed as you hear this same truth expressed in this song.